Hello everyone. This is um the Shuttle Podcast podcast. Uh, I am Nick and I am Echo. And um this is the podcast in which we share space news and space facts and fun stuff about space and astronomy and astrophysics and all the all the stuff about the wild and wacky universe except for astrology. No, no astrology, not today anyway. Sorry. Maybe one day we'll cover that. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I'm a cancer, so uh, if we ever partner with, like, a cancer fund. A Capri yeah, Sun. bad joke. Capri Sun. <laughs> Capri Sun. Capricorn. Good joke. Now that's a better joke than the one I just made. Hey, our last episode, our last episode had 822 downloads. What? 822 downloads. What the hell? <laughs> Which is weird <laughs> because episode... Hey, guys. <laughs> episode three had 194, so apparently people really like the podcast as soon as i got a good mic i'm confused hey everyone uh how's your five months been yeah uh, sorry yeah. we'll see you again in two to four uh years boy, oh boy two to four weeks <laughs> yeah it's just an exponential graph <sighs> how many points do you have anyway points yeah like like oh talking points uh, bu- 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 four but one is very long I have one, two, three, four, five, six, but two are very short, so <laughs> it might balance out. Well, five. I was going to talk about the meteor storm, but I guess that's past. Yeah. Um, recently, as of today is uh, June 3rd, uh, the northern hemisphere, or Earth itself, I suppose, got gifted with a wondrous meteor storm as we passed through the trail of a defunct comet. Um, this comet was very messy, so if you did get to see it, sorry, Nick, uh, <laughs> the the uh, sky was lit up every five to ten seconds with at least one little stream of light. Um, I got the luck to be in Flagstaff at the Lowell Observatory while this was happening, so not only did we see that, we also saw the ISS. This would be the second time that I've mentioned going to the Lowell Observatory, so you know how much I like it. <laughs> Yeah, that that was just pretty nice as as far as um that goes. That was my point. <laughs> yeah, I missed that. I'm very upset that I missed that. And so I didn't actually click the article that you sent me. Um, I just read the headline. I was like, oh, cool. <laughs> oh, yeah, it was a Business Insider article. It's probably fine. Um, yeah, like the article is just the headline, basically. But mm-hmm. my father was like, dude, like that meteor shower is supposed to be the biggest one of our lifetime. It was, well, if it happened, that was the thing. There was about a 50-50 chance that we were sure oh, wow. if it was even going to be visible. That's weird. And it ended up being being about in the middle. It was, it, was, it was pretty nice. So maybe not the biggest one? At any rate, it was a nice birthday present for anybody born on the 30th and 31st. So, uh, moving on, plants have been grown in lunar soil for the first time. So uh, there was a article published in the journal Communications Biology on Thursday, May 12th, so small while ago, um, recent in uh, terms of journal, academic journal publication. Mm-hmm. No? Oh, yeah, uh, definitely. There were, I don't know if we can put a picture of, if there's the YouTube video, we might be able to put a picture of this if you're okay editing that in because there's a bunch of pictures of this, but, but there were a whole bunch of little tiny thimble-sized pods and they put roughly a gram of regolith, which is lunar soil, that's what it's called, mm-hmm. and some water, uh, seeds, and nutrient solution into the, well, thimble, right? 
and the scientific name of the plant I won't even attempt to pronounce, but it is a type of mustard, a relative of the edible mustard, um, and it's its whole genome is mapped out, I believe, and it has been extensively studied, including how it grows in space. So it is a very nearly ideal candidate for the study. I don't know <laughs> if there were any other candidates, to be honest. Um, but the effects that the lunar soil had on the plants were actually quite pronounced. For the first six days, they grew about the same. However, the plants in the lunar soil grew more slowly and they had very stunted roots. The roots ended up being a sort of reddish brown color as opposed to the normal whitish color, oddly enough. And um, this stunted development actually mimics how they would grow in harsh developments, such as uh, soil with too much salt or heavy metals, because when this particular plant has been grown in that soil, they grow in that manner. Interesting. I know, it's very interesting. And they did um, multiple control groups uh, planted in earth soil, as well as various soil compositions designed to imitate lunar, lunar or Mars soil. So, interesting study, mm. yeah. That... I would like to make a clever comment on it, but right now all I can think about is the Doctor Who episode where they grew the carrots on Mars and then became hideous monsters. I wish I I've <laughs> seen I when I was a kid I watched all the Matt Smith Doctor Who's and then was, when I was like a which number was when that? I was like a teenager I watched the Peter Capaldi Doctor Who's many of them and then I sort of just lost momentum from there because whatever streaming service it was on I no longer had access to I think it was Netflix my parents got rid of it. Netflix dropped it, actually, oh, like that, a way long time that ago. Must be, I remember that must be being it, upset then. as like a, a single-digit-aged person who probably shouldn't have been watching Doctor Who, but was anyways, and just they had dropped it, and I was like, no. That's sad. It's been around so long, dude, but that show was great. I loved I loved Doctor Who when I watched it. Who's your favorite Doctor? Oh, I have... Mm, Ted? <laughs> Which one's that? I rate my Doctors by... The sonic screwdrivers, so probably actually eleven. Interesting. Uh, I've I, I don't care as much about their personalities or faces because they're all just sort of yeah snarky. I'm only familiar with three of them. <laughs> snarky British guys. Snarky British. <laughs> well, no, they're I some, I think they're remarkably different. Women. I mean, Matt Smith and Peter Capaldi portray extensively different personalities through the character of the Doctor, in my opinion. Mm, also true. Um, man. Regolith, though, that's interesting because I didn't think it was too different from just a sort of silicate rock that you would see on Earth. And the fact that it's also an inedible plant, well, I assume, it's an interesting choice for them to grow that there. Obviously, I'm a terrible biochemist, so what I say holds little to no bearing on the actual weight of the subject. <laughs> but that, from an outside perspective, that seems like exclusively interesting choices <laughs> the fact that they would choose that particular plant and what i believed to just be similar to rock it's similar enough but it's completely distinct from other forms of rock considering it's a body entirely separate from earth yeah that's um, true but i mean other a lunar soil synthesis was used as a control group and the actual lunar soil did produce different results so oh, huh. it is i don't know if it's statistically significant but it, the difference is significant but yeah lunar soil oh also i need to <laughs> i want to give credit to the 
authors of the study. So it's the University of Florida. Uh, you have Annalisa Paul, pronounceable name, from the Horticultural Sciences Department of University of Florida. Stephen M. Ilardo from the Geological Sciences Department. And I believe Robert Frill was the research lead, though I could be wrong, from the Horticultural Sciences Department as well. In the articles that I read to research this topic, Robert Frill was the one that was interviewed and the one that commented to the journalist writing these articles. So I would that's why I assume he's the research lead, because the actual synopsis of the research paper that I found uh, in one of those bibliography citation websites did not actually say that. So, yeah, I'm sorry, uh, Anna or Steven, if it's one of you dudes. <laughs> um, and I'm sorry, Robert, if I'm giving you too much credit. Also, Stephen, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing your name. Um, Elardo. I doubt that's it. All right. All right. Moving on. One of mine? Sure. You can go. Okay. Uh, Nick, I sent you pic- pictures of this. and um, I didn't actually listeners. understand what I was looking at. <laughs> um, I will tell you in a second, but audio listeners, there will also be a link uh, to this in the description if it fits. Yeah, if there's, <laughs> um, if there's room. And visual listeners... Um, how do you exist, first of all? And second of all, there will be a picture of this in the YouTube video. Uh, NASA's Curiosity rover has once again found rocks shaped in a completely unprecedented formation. I, I did send you the picture of this, Nick, but it seems as if the rocks have developed in such a way that gravity does not care <laughs> what they do. It looks a bit like snakes, um, but this, I think, is the most jarring ones um next to the one that looked like a spoon <laughs> oh yeah that's that's actually exactly yeah. what came to mind when i saw that image it reminded me of that spoon image actually i had to be like i don't remember how old i was when that happened like 14 i think something like that <laughs> um the, the whole spoon thing i remember i went on to the ufo alien forums i was like 14 <laughs> and then i posted Uh-oh. to to it and i was like what is this um and i was expecting to get like an answer like oh like it's this particular species of alien and i know because i i was abducted and i was i was ready to believe it i was you know wholeheartedly going to believe the first-hand account of some dude but everyone (laughs) on there was like oh actually it's just a formation of rock and i these conspiracy theorists grounded me but on mars i just looked this up just now so i don't have this memorized mars has a zero point 376 g's of gravity so you know these rocks supposedly forming defiance to gravity and where and where you can jump three times as high a lot of weird things happen yeah gravity doesn't quite pull down the rock um i don't know i don't even know how much that stone even weighs on mars i would suspect if you were to touch it it would break apart pretty easily yeah um well you also weigh a lot less though on mars yeah that's true (laughs) The transfer of momentum, I'd say that much at least, would be enough to... Uh, oh, how big are these rocks, it. though? Oh, let's see. Are these, that like, person size? Tree size? Doing a little bit of trick. It looks like it would go up to your hip, most likely. Um, just given how much size I know the Curiosity rover has, it's quite a big boy. Big boy. So these are top-down pictures. I would say, um, rough estimate, need a hip. It's one of those things where there's no frame of reference. So if you look at it in the right light, it could be, you know, like the size of your forearm. Or if you look at it in the right light, it could be the size of a house. 
just depending on your What's mindset. The scene from 2001. I don't know. Yeah, the spoons on Mars. That was crazy. And these strange <laughs> objects. So you said you thought this looked like... Um, Looks a little bit like a cobra to cobra. me. I, when I saw that, I thought it looked like driftwood. You ever seen like really spindly driftwood? Oh, yeah. Is that it for this point? I suppose so. <laughs> it's just really interesting looking at it. It is, yeah. I'm so glad you found <laughs> that. that was <sighs> Shall I go? Shall I? Shall I give a point? Okay. Let's see. Oh, I'm here's a fun one. Not sipping coffee. Ooh, okay. do I want to do the fun one yet, or shall I? Shall I hold off? Let's do the fun one. Yeah, um, let's do a fun one. So, a binary star system has been discovered with the shortest orbit yet discovered. Orbit between the stars that is not of a planet. Um, so oh. this planet is, or this system, excuse me, is three thousand light years from Earth. So, uh, I'm skipping a jump. It's a decent jump in galactic, relative to galactic terms. It's not terribly far. And, I mean, close enough to observe. It's called a Black Widow binary because... Oh. So you are familiar with the Black Widow binary. I think. Okay. Explain that. I will explain it. So you're familiar with neutron stars, right? Pulsars? Yes. They they expend their reserves, right, at extreme rates as they spin around. Um, A Black Widow binary is when a pulsar, a neutron star, orbits another star and slowly consumes it. At a rate faster yes. <laughs> than it um, expends its energy, so it feeds. It essentially feeds itself, sustains itself, and prevents itself from dying until that star depletes, and then it eventually just kills itself and dies. Yeah, I love it. Cygnus X one is very similar. It's a black hole, I believe, a supergiant, and the black hole is just eating it away. It's just a very hungry system. Not not quite Black Widow. Yeah, black holes are quite gluttonous. Yeah, and it's called the Black Widow because, um, I mean, obviously what spiders do is consume their prey, but the Black Widow specifically will uh, consume their mates. The male, the male, I guess they're also Black Widows, so the female Black Widow will essentially, after mating, consume, uh, will trap the male and then wrap it and then paralyze it. So Black Widow venom is paralytic, if you didn't know that. Uh, Brown recluse Mm -hmm. venom is corrosive, which is why even though... Black Widows are considered more deadly. If you survive both, the Brown Recluse will mess you up a lot more because the Brown Recluse will corrode your flesh and your skin, whereas the Black Widow only kills you if the paralytic agent um, reaches your diaphragm. So if it bites you on your foot, for example, or your finger, odds are very high that it will paralyze your arm and some of your torso, but not your diaphragm, and you will be fine. Don't go handling Black Widows because I said that. They are dangerous and they kill people. Don't sue me. Um, anyway, <laughs> off topic. That's off topic. Uh, the stars, so so the, the thing that makes this Black Widow binary so interesting is that the stars circle each other every 62 minutes. They orbit each other every 62 minutes. And I thought, I mean, if the, if it said five days, I would have been impressed. But 62 minutes, that's insane. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's orbited a, a bajillion times. I mean, today Just, already. Yeah. One hundred twenty fifth, yeah, <laughs> of five days, more or less. Yeah, that's really. I mean, that must be insanely. The, the, I, I can only imagine how much these stars, since they have, they have to be close in order to be able to do right, that. Right, right. How much they would be displaced, not, not even only by just the pulsar eating the other one away, them pulling on another one. I have a, I, I have a point in here that has a star that's just sort of spins around itself and bulges at the equator as a result, and just that 
times <laughs> whatever yeah. whatever factor that's multiplied by sounds insane to look at, but also to be around because evisceration is most definite. <laughs> yeah. And um, one more interesting thing about this system that makes it a bit more cool is it hosts a third star, but that star oh. orbits the two inner stars every 10,000 years. Oh. So it just watches. It's, it's not really a trinary star system because that's not uncommon. Um, same hmm. thing with black holes. To give credit where credit is due, this paper, this article, has multiple dozen <laughs> authors from many universities. <laughs> so I won't, I won't um, attempt to read them all to spare the listeners at home some boredom. But you can look up this article and therefore view the authors, and therefore I'm accrediting them. If you look up a 62-minute orbital period Black Widow binary in a wide hierarchical hierarchical triple on nature.com is where the article is located it's got lots of graphs and data and numbers and it's sexy and it's in times new roman um <laughs> research papers are so sexy dude like i don't know should i proceed with my point or uh sure yeah go ahead so 45 years and 23.3 billion kilometers into its mission, which is about 20 and a half light hours, Voyager 1 is giving us pretty weird data. Obviously, since it's past Neptune, I will use Carl Sagan's elegant words to describe what listening to Voyager 1 is even like. Chapter 6 of Pale Blue Dot says that it is like listening to an amoeba's footstep. Huh. <laughs> but... We're seeing these strange bits of data coming from our dear plutonium-powered friend in the midst of data that points to correct alignment of its antenna. It just seems as if it's lost its direction in what is closer and closer approaching to the heliosphere. Suzanne Dodd, the project manager of Voyager 1 and 2 at NASA's JPL in uh, Southern California, says that a mystery like this is sort of par for the course at this stage of the Voyager mission, end quote, but the... Yeah, the weird thing is, as of now, which is uh, June 3rd, 2022, those reports of errors don't really line up with other ones, and we just don't really know what's going on with it. Its sister, Voyager 2, is doing okay, but uh, Voyager 1's viability does seem to have... It does seem to have a little bit of an issue now. I mean, obviously its trajectory can't change, so has it simply rotated? Uh, we're not exactly sure. The thing with the antenna alignment, though, would lead me to believe, at least, that it's correctly rotated. My first guess, although this is not checked or anything, would be that there's some sort of gravitational anomaly that's that's out there that we don't really know about. But even then, that would be extremely difficult to uh, assess or verify. So right now... Um, Engineers at JPL are just sort of hunched over their desk trying to figure out what the heck it's talking about. But this is not the first time that the Voyager spacecraft has sort of logicked itself into oblivion. In Pale Blue Dot, again, Sagan talks about uh, issues that we've had. The Around April 1978, Voyager 2 had gone into safe mode after seven days, and its backup receiver switched off and its prime receiver had been switched back on after those seven days. We had no idea at first exactly what, what was going on with that. But granted, it is around, it, it is 45-year-old technology now. So at the end of that chapter, I believe it's 
6. Sagan does talk about how launching another deep space probe, not unlike these voyagers, would now with our increased data storage per volume abilities and our just the way that we're able to compact everything and make it cheaper, launching another one of these would be pretty handy. Just the semantics of getting that approved are something that a lot of people don't see worth our while. Yeah, I can see that. But I'm, if it is an anomalous error that's from within the Voyager spacecraft, I, for one, am pretty solemn about it. Solemn. It's... It seems like it had a really good run. In fact, at the time of writing of Pale Blue Dot, 1994, it was expected to have been doing a lot worse than it had been. Hmm. So I guess this is just, this might just be its time. But the Voyager spacecrafts are the ones that are related to the famous Golden Record. Yeah, so the aboard both Voyager spacecrafts are Golden Records that depict where we are in our solar system, what we look like, and a couple more things about us, and also around two hours, if I'm not mistaken, of audio from various languages and genres of music on Earth, including whale speak. I guess that's its legacy at this point, but it's been vital in obtaining a lot of critical data about the gas giants, as well as things that we hadn't really predicted uh, about certain astronomical bodies. And I guess, yeah, just a salute to Voyager if this is its time, but um, let's hope it's not. What's um, what's the utility of Voyager outside of the heliosphere? Um, no? Outside of the... I'm not exactly sure. The thing is with its fuel, plutonium, it's the... It's just powered by radioactivity. So what right. um, we have is a couple readings that it's sending back every now and then, but um, basically just on low power mode for a while until that isotope ends up not being useful anymore but beyond it yeah it, it would be that golden record we've sent out certain things before sagan as well was involved um with sending a signal to a globular cluster um that depicted if arranged correctly quite a pretty picture of what humankind was all about i guess it would just be even though the chances are extremely slim some sort of contact and light reading for an alien species that would happen upon discovering it Wait, this is data, though. Is this the golden disk, or is this another form of data? Uh, what do you mean? What is being sent to the cluster? Oh, uh, what's being sent to the cluster is unrelated to the Voyager program, but that's just a, a picture. It's ba- it's pixel art, basically. <laughs> oh, pixel yeah. art. Nice. Voyager, how many... So there's Voyager 1 and Voyager mm-hmm. 2, right? That's it? Yeah. Yeah, there's Voyager 2, though. That's still perfectly fine. Yeah. But um, ultimately, I... Its utility has not been expended, but for the most part, been fulfilled. Mm-hmm. So it will be sad, but it, you know, hardware wears out. Yeah. Yes. A salute to Voyager. Big salute. Isn't there a Star Trek episode where, you know, the original series? Uh, yes. Where the Voyager, I think it's the Voyager probe gets found by a sentient race of robots in like a different galaxy or something like that. Oh, oh no. And then they think that it is a broken sentient robot, so they repair it and make the Voyager probe sentient. It was. But they give it the new imperative of, like, I don't know, like, destroying imperfect life or some (laughs) crap like that. So it goes around, it goes around, or no, they give it the imperative of finding perfect life. I don't know how it goes, but so it goes around the galaxy, the Milky Way, and then it sterilizes planets because the life is imperfect. And it's in search of perfect life. 
so that it can protect the perfect life or something like that. And then it finds Captain Kirk and it thinks Captain Kirk is his creator because the um, Kirk's name is similar to its creator's name. Kirk manages to use some sort of linguistic paradox to convince the machine oh. that the machine is imperfect. Yeah. And then the machine's like, dude, I'm imperfect. And it just short circuits and that goes was, up. I, I was thinking of the actual like huge spacecraft just sort of flying around but i remember that scene it was somebody that they painted silver correct <laughs> no it was the, a weird tube it was a weird tube oh right <laughs> it's all right it might not even be voyager yeah that was a good episode that was a really good episode mm. i yeah that was like the third time that was like the third time in the first two seasons of of the original series in which Captain Kirk argued with the computer to make it short circuit. Because <laughs> um, there was that one. Do you remember Landru? I think that's who I was thinking of. Landru was a box. I think no. that's not who I was thinking <laughs> of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Landru, there was a whole civilization of people that um, were brainwashed and controlled by a central computer named Landru. And basically, they were living in peace and harmony, and there were machines walking around essentially all happy. But then once a week, there was this festival, which was basically the purge, where they went around killing each other. And then the whole rest of the week, they were happy, going around controlled by the machine. Hmm. Um, and then eventually, Kirk goes and argues with Landru and, and gives it a linguistic paradox. And then Landru short circuits and dies. And then um, the people are free. Yeah, and then in Star Trek Lower Decks, uh, they repaired Landru and oh, went no. back to worshipping him. <laughs> but... I don't consider Star Trek Lower Decks to be canon because they treat the um, continuity very, very uh, flexibly. So it's it's interpretive. Yeah, I'm I'm a Trekkie. If you can't if you can't Lower tell. Decks, I consider to be on the same level as Orville, where it's just mostly for poking fun at space shows. <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically. I mean, it's a good show. I just don't I just don't take it seriously yeah. enough to call it canon. Mm. I haven't seen all of it though. I lost my paramount plus when the trial expired so first two seasons hmm. oh yeah i was really upset they took star trek off of amazon which is what i used oh that made me so yeah. mad and yeah because that's I was home with a migraine one day and i usually watch it to just like have a smooth flow of information and comfort mm -hmm. <laughs> so that it eventually goes away through whatever me mechanism happens in my brain that makes it go away but then I, I sure. opened Amazon and my migraine got worse as I was looking for it desperately. And it's like, no, I have to pay for it. Okay. <laughs> Star Trek, you know, the Star Treks are my favorite shows. I could watch those morning, noon, and night every single day. So the fact that they took those off Amazon, which I had, mm. <laughs> now, now I can't get them, decreases my happiness substantially. But that is a first world problem. That is a first world problem. So I don't complain about it that Jeff much. Jeff Bezos is a first world problem. Jeff Bezos? No, it's the people that own Paramount is the are the people that did it. They are too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Stupid Paramount. Arg. Silly fellows. What was that? Yeah. That post one time it was just like all of these companies making their own streaming services, thinking that I'm going to pay for it, but it's just going to make me want to pirate their content more. It's true. That's true. I that's a yeah, quote from don't pirate content, by the way. That's a quote from somebody. People I'm not saying that I pirate content. I don't. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's a meme, dude. It's just a meme, just a joke. Yes. No, piracy is wrong unless you're unless you're role playing a pirate. Piracy is wrong unless it isn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep. Ethics one oh one. Anyway, shall we move on? Sure. Beautiful. Alright, shall I go or do you want do you want to uh, go? go? 
All right, so I don't have really many points left that are very long, but this one's kind of cool. So there was this expansive study that encompassed over 870 planet-forming disks in the Orion A cloud. And this is all approximately 1,450 light years from Earth. So, you know, far enough for a reasonably diverse change in planet-forming disks mm. as we would expect in our own cluster of space, if that makes sense. All of these disks that were studied are orbiting young stars. They use data that was previously taken from the Herschel Space Telescope that had observed and identified these disks. And uh, rejecting all disks closer than 13 light years, they use the... How do you, how do I pronounce this? I don't know. Atacama? Atasama? It's a C, so it could be soft, could be hard. Uh, Atacama Large Millimeter Slash Submillimeter Array, or ALMA, in the Chilean Atacama Desert, which has 66 parabolic antennae. I don't know what parabolic means in this context. Every single one of these 66 antennae composite their readings together so as to function as a singular telescope so it's an array essentially mm. which is in the title um <laughs> and the study seems to indicate that within the next 1000 light years all the populations of planet forming disks show the same mass distribution at any given age mm. x age they have y mass distribution across essentially every single one of the planet planet forming disks so it's kind of interesting. Yeah. And it seems very counterintuitive from what I would expect because these disks, right, are ultimately from, well, bodies that have been broken up or and, and smashed apart or mass that has been ejected and solidified, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, generally what we see is in nebulas and star formation, a lot of mess will be made and that mess ends up turning into what we see become planets eventually. You would think that there'd be, um like... You think that because the various ejections of mass and smashing apart of various interplanetary and orbital objects would be of different scale, that the planet-forming disks would have different mass distributions at any given age. So this study, not only is it new information, but it seems remarkably counterintuitive to me. Mm. Granted, I'm not an astrophysicist. I am a computer science undergraduate, so... Yeah, I'm not not the most qualified to make these judgments, but as a layman, this seems counterintuitive. So it's very interesting. To give credit where credit is due, Sierk Van Terwiska from the Max Planck Institute for Astronomy led this study. Planet formation is something that's so mysterious to us, even when putting it in terms of just the trunk of the Porphyrian tree that the scientific terminology will go into. It's just so strange. So, I mean, all the information that we can get is useful uh, at this point. I don't know. I found it interesting. It's not as exciting as the Black Widow binary, mm -hmm, but yeah. it's exciting. It's, well, it's a different pace you know, of exciting. Different pace, yeah. Different different flavor of exciting. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you want spice and utter evaporation of everything, and sometimes you want protoplanetary science. <laughs> it's true. Sometimes you want spice, sometimes you want sugar. Mm -hmm. So All right. there's that. I do have just one point. One more point, and it's the long one that took the entire Let's page. see how many I have. I have... So I did this, this, this. I have three. <laughs> ah. <laughs> They're short, though. So shall I give a couple yeah. then? I have two points regarding water. <laughs> so I guess they're related enough to both share at once. Hmm. There is uh, one regarding a paper, not really a research paper, but more of a review, 
written about Ceres that thoroughly details all of the current data from the Dawn mission regarding Ceres. Now, this was back in 2015, mm-hmm. I believe, uh, Dawn orbited Ceres and collected data. But the paper was written this year. Essentially, Dawn discovered evidence for recent geological activity as a result of salt-rich liquids. Salt-rich oceans hypothesized deep within the dwarf planet Mm. so i believe last episode we hypothesized not hypothesized we toyed around with the fictional and fun idea of a rogue europa just chilling out without a star with an arcology Mm. and the underwater oceans and all that crap looks like we have another europa within our very own solar system ceres uh, is not quite geologically dead. Yeah, it would, it would also, have to be in order for um, the oceans to not be melted. Right. So I just, I found that interesting. It's a small point, that's all there is to it, but I found that interesting. And I didn't bother writing down the name of the paper so that I could tell you guys to go check it out. But listeners at home, you can just look up review paper about Dawn Mission, review paper Dawn Mission series, that's D-A-W-N, and you'll find it, um, or anything about the Dawn Mission, really, um, or just Dawn Mission series, that's C-E-R-E-S, the uh, dwarf planet. And then the other point about water did you have anything to comment about that, actually, before I move on? Uh, no, I, I just really like that the, the idea that we were toying around with is starting to come more to life because this is something that would have to be almost exclusively geologically active to retain any of its heat. And sure, we have um, something like that. Yeah. Point number two, moon water from Earth. So it's hypothesized that uh, hydrogen and oxygen ions, I don't actually... An ion is just a... Uh, it's a charged particle. Is It's an atom missing an electron, right? Uh, I don't know. It's, it's been ages since I took chemistry, but essentially, isn't it an atom of a certain element that is still of that element, but it's positively or negatively charged in somehow and does not have... Yeah, so, so yeah, an ion would just be a charged element or particle. Circling back, people think that hydrogen and oxygen ions escape Earth's upper atmosphere and could sublimate and combine on the moon and create lunar water and ice and obviously it would be trace amounts but Just passively it's hypothesized and that's that's it that is all there's not i don't think there's really any proof for this it's just hypothesized at the moment i found it interesting and there was a whole article written about it i was like whoa you know this person spent all spent all this time writing an article and published it so has to be interesting to more than just me. <laughs> <laughs> That's weird. I haven't thought about particles escaping the atmosphere since, I don't know, it's been a while. But I know that something as light as helium would, something as heavy as oxygen, or I guess hydrogen makes sense, but oxygen, which is the eighth, is is rather puzzling to me. Isn't helium so obscenely light that when in liquid form, it has a viscosity of almost absolute zero? I I would take your word for it. Okay. Yeah. Obviously, I don't know much about viscosity as aforementioned, but as far as I'm aware, in a closed system, in a perfect system, uh, viscosity of zero could mean perpetual motion without friction, but perpetual motion. That's just so odd, because you think about how space is such an empty place, and the hypothesis now is that it's starting to be filled with particles that, I mean, obviously, if you have a big enough fishnet, you can get whatever you want. That can You can just, like, scoop out of the air with the moon. <laughs> That's in, incredibly interesting, even, even if it's minuscule. The moon's small enough that it can be close enough, though. Mm. 
I think it'd be interesting though to see uh, further research on the topic. Actually, I don't know what episode this was, but it might have been our first or second one, which will likely get deleted. But if it was the third episode that we talked about this, do you, do you remember the name of all those lunar rovers that were being sent to the moon to do some research before it started to get mined extensively or defaced about uh, water on the surface that was ice that sublimated into water, vapor and water itself when uh, the sun hit the moon and then descended back as ice once more. Do you remember the name of that mission, those, those rovers? I don't recall any rovers. You say the sun hit the moon? Sunlight. Oh, okay. <laughs> hmm. No. I do know that uh, some people theorize that when the earth and moon were both forming, the moon had a vast amount of liquid water on it, and then because it doesn't retain much of an atmosphere at all, in fact, it only retains an exosphere, which is to say it doesn't have anything there, that it just sort of evaporated and left. Sure. Um, but yeah, I, I'm not sure. I can't recall any of that. Well, no research yet. It is to come. So you have your long point then, right? I do. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So here begins the story of WASP-189b. It's a star system about 322 light years away in the constellation Libra. We've seen before in planetary science where it merges with biochemistry, there's always some environment seemingly similar to that of Earth's at some point in its development, from looking at Titan's atmosphere in, and its tholins to hypothesizing olivine presence in Europa, materials which were thought to be a key ingredient to life on Earth, um, and even to the alarm caused recently by the continual production of chemicals that would normally disappear if it weren't for its continuous supply into the Venusian atmosphere. And we're now looking at a similarities among exoplanets that are much like what we've seen in our own sole solar system. WASP-189 is an A-type star with a spin so fast that it bulges at its equator, making it look more like a frisbee than your classic sphere. And around it is an object of high interest, a planet one and a half times Jupiter's and 3,200 degrees Celsius, according to ESA's... Oh, those are words. C-H-E-O-P-S, Cheops mission, making it one of the hottest exoplanets known about. And recently, astronomers have found evidence of titanium oxide in its atmosphere. This chemical, often used in sunscreens here on Sol 3, would act under these conditions similarly to how O3, ozone, acts here on Earth, making WASP-189b absorb starlight in its atmosphere, which consists of iron, chromium, vanadium, magnesium, and manganese. Some quick facts about the planet itself, aside from this interesting ozone parallel, is that it takes 2.7 days to orbit its home star, and because it's so close, about one-eighth the distance of the sun to Mercury, one-twentieth of the distance from the sun to Earth, its eccentricity is to the third or fourth sig fig about zero. And it's, as aforementioned, extremely hot. 3200 degrees Celsius is most certainly lethal to organic life. But since we've seen a parallel much like how we've seen on Titan, even though we can't breathe methane, much too stinky. Stinky. The similarities, just the nature of it, not even the chemical composition, is definitely an interest peaker, an eyebrow raiser for um, exobiologists. Yes, but it's extremely hot. That's well over, I mean, that's well over 3000 Kelvins. Mm-hmm. Atmospherically, yes, very exobiologically interesting, but I don't, not that I know much about planet development. Maybe I'll get there one day. 
Um, Not that anybody knows a lot about uh, life development. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, that's why Venus, even, and uh, Titan are so interesting. It could be that chemicals would come together in that way to create life. What What is the... Do you know anything about the development of nomenclature for the classification of these systems? Because last episode, last episode I yeah. I spoke of WASP 76B and yeah. what did you say this one was uh WASP 189B 189B um, right so what's the what's the nomenclature hardly any relation other than the observing device that it was discovered with oh really yeah so this was just discovered with a WASP observing device yeah nomenclature would be something to talk to the ESA about because Frankly, I just see the thing and I'm like, oh, that's kind of similar. And then I look into it surface level. <laughs> surface level. But I, I, I do think it would be very interesting to the inner process of how you name astronomical objects. If you, the other day, maybe a week ago, I was researching a star catalog. And in this star catalog, I was looking up a system to see if I could find an alternate name for it to punch into, punch into Elite Dangerous to find it in the galaxy. Oh, yeah. Well, ultimately, what I discovered is that there are multiple names for systems. Multiple names for systems that don't have conventional names, like Bernard Star, you know, just in terms of nomenclature and classification, which I found to be interesting. I believe that system in question had three classifications. A little, little, little fun fact, a little trivia tidbit for you listeners at home. That's all I have to say, though, on, on <laughs> that planet. I'm sorry. No, that's fine. I don't have enough enough know-how on the topic someday someday i'll get there I've... another thing that's interesting is that i believe this is the second planet we've talked about that has gaseous iron possibly one source said it did and one source didn't mention it gaseous iron in its atmosphere which is as we are familiar at home to it not easy right. to turn into a gas yeah <laughs> right yeah yeah not so often i wonder what gaseous iron smells like oh. if i was capable of smelling it without taking Physical harm, damage, whatever. Video video game terminology, losing hit points. Losing hit points, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wonder what it would smell like. Kind of like, I was wondering the other day, if, if I was incapable of being burned, I, I was wondering what it would feel like to stick my hand in lava. No pain, just okay. sensation. Probably be rather interesting. Very heavy, I would imagine. I wonder, yeah. I imagine it would feel like sticking your arm into liquid mercury. Oh, it just stick to you and stuff. Yuck. Yeah. Yep. It's just, it would stick to you. Have you ever seen the videos? Did you ever follow, I think it was Nate's Lab on YouTube? I don't think so. Okay. When I was younger, significantly younger, I followed him because he did fun chemistry stuff. And there was a video in which to prove that mercury on your skin doesn't damage you if you don't have cuts, otherwise like punctures or otherwise some sort of orifice that the mercury can enter your bloodstream through. He got a small pool of mercury, liquid mercury, must have cost him a fortune. He filled the pool with mercury, and then he got in the pool, <laughs> and it was so heavy that it that even though he was standing in the pool, he couldn't sink down to the bottom of the pool because he was so buoyant in it that it only went up to his knees, and that's it. That's as far down as he could get with his body weight. Oh, gosh. And yeah, bare feet, bare legs, just in the mercury. And he was just standing there for a while and, and chilling out. And uh, it was hard for him to keep balance. And then oh, that uh, must be terrifying. he went and got a little test, a little blood test for mercury. And it was within the safe levels. So yeah, apparently you can handle liquid mercury just fine. Hmm. Um, you just don't want it 
in your bloodstream, in your body. So yeah, don't. And by the way, um, listeners at home, don't go get mercury and play around with it. I I advise you to treat mercury with caution. I'll give you 20 bucks if you do it. (laughs) 20 bucks. Yeah. (laughs) I'm sure that's worth it. To be honest, I, well, no, I wouldn't. I, I do really <laughs> dumb things for cash, though. Oh, yeah, I had a job once. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, my last job, dumb things for cash. My gosh, that was a horrible job. <sighs> that was that was my that was my last point, I think. Um, I nope, no, I have one more. <gasps> oh, you That was your last point you just did? Uh, yes. Shall I, mo- shall I do mine? Sure. Beautiful. Prepare so, Mars Auroras. Oh, right, yes. How do you say, is it Emirates? E-M-I-R-A-T-E-S. How do you Emirates? pronounce that? Emirates? Sounds, that sounds better than Emirates. Yeah, Emirates. <laughs> the Emirates Mars mission. The first mission from an Arab nation? Oh, right. The UAE. Yeah. Right. Um, it released images of Mars auroras recently. I don't have a date down in my notes, but very recently. So the mission lead was Hessa al Matraushi. Uh, I know that's a mispronun- mispronunciation of your name. I'm sorry if you're, you're not listening to this, but I'm sorry. Forgive me. Um, anyway, the focus of this mission at the moment or at the moment that this was released was on discrete auroras on Mars in the magnetic field. So essentially the interplanetary magnetic field carried by the solar wind drapes around Mars, combining magnetism in the Martian crust to form a complex array of magnetic fields on the night side of the planet. And uh, the shapes of the aurora, incidentally, are being analyzed to better understand the field's dynamics with solar winds. So the mission is called the HOPE mission. I don't know what that's an abbreviation for. It is following its planned 20,000 to 43,000 kilometer orbit with an inclination of 25 degrees. Oddly enough, it completes orbit every 55 hours, which I found to be rather impressive. That being said, it's um, Mars, so it's a bit smaller of a planet. It captures a full data sample of the whole planet every nine days throughout its two-year mission. So oh. that's cool. Jeez. The probe arrived at Mars on 2020, in 2021, so... Oh, okay, I remember that. Yeah. I don't, I, I don't know when it was launched, though. Here, let me do a search. It would take you about three months, I think, to get there. Congrats to the UAE, by the way. That was a very yeah, absolutely ambitious thing to do, and they pulled it off very well. Oh, also, here, there's pictures of it. I'll send that to you. Maybe maybe we could put that in the video, too, if it's not too much work. Gasp. I, not, not that it's necessary for you guys to listen, or, excuse me, watch the video. It's not. <laughs> Orb. Yeah, that's basically, it's just a low resolution photo of an orb, but I find it to be really impressive. And due to my extensive interest in this and my, I mean, the fact that this is just in higher resolution, this looks like it would be jaw droppingly gorgeous. I might actually make this, put this in the rotation for my desktop wallpaper. I'm wanting to compose a rotation of various space images. Should we do a a bye-bye? Yeah, an outro. Sure. Um, that's the end of the episode, I guess. Let's plug our stuff. We have a Discord server. Um, Echo and I True. are really the only two active people on it Untrue. anymore. Reno is also there. Reno is also there. <laughs> he posts a meme once in a while. But Echo and I are, I mean, if you want to talk to us and get to know us and talk about space, we're, we're, we'll we'll respond. What else? What was the other thing? <laughs> oh, Twitter. Yes, All right. Echo, yeah, been... Echo runs a Twitter account for us, and, app. and um, I I also post there once in a while if I ever log on. 
I guess that's it. Oh, um, also, I made... Ooh, I guess there's no way to rep this. I was going to say, I made a petition. Oh, yeah. To add the planets of the solar system to Unicode, the Unicode system as emojis. If you want emojis for Mars and Jupiter and Saturn and Neptune, which, in my opinion, are much more necessary than man in business suit levitating, which is an emoji... Sign the petition. Speak and for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Think for yourself. You can you can do it anonymously if you don't feel like adding your name. You can also add your name and leave a message if you want to have a bigger impact or not. I mean, it's up to you, but it would be a huge help. I want to get a bunch of signatures and then I'll attach it to my I'll attach it to my submission form where I request those emojis uh, to the Unicode Consortium, which is it's the real name of the organization. So yeah, please. Sign the petition. Look it up. Just just look up Planet of Solar System Unicode emoji petition. You'll find it. Also, maybe in the description. Maybe in the description. That's like four things, though, that we're adding to the description. I don't know if it'll fit. It'll be in the YouTube description for sure. Yeah. Um, you can write an essay in there. I don't advise it, but you could. <laughs> wait. I just told people to join our Discord, but they have no way to join it. Okay, that needs to go in the description. That will too. definitely oh be gosh. in the description. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Find Logistics. It. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we're good at this. We know what we're doing. Yeah, it's only. All right. Is that it? I then? guess that was apt. That I my brain expired right as I was about to say it. it's only human. Yeah, it's only. <laughs> I I thought maybe you cut out. To be honest. I mean, in a sense of the term. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, biologically, you cut out interference you're not coming in good all right i'm going to hit the button all right nick and echo signing off